0: Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, in addition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 51. Today, the topic is the good fruit of suffering. And this comes to us from 2 Corinthians in Paul's teaching on this matter. Now, I don't know about you, but I suffer. Our world does have suffering in it as a reality. We are in this world, and therefore, we suffer as a result the people of many different religions agree on that. The difference is where do we go from there? Well, that's what this teaching is all about. The Bible teaches us here in 2 Corinthians of how we should view suffering, how we should understand God's design and purpose in it. This episode is brought to you by my patrons over at patreon.com. I want to thank them for their support, and I want to ask you to prayerfully consider Supporting the work that I do at betterbiblereading.com. If you feel so led, I want to invite you to go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash betterbiblereading. You have three options of how to pledge your support. And when you do, you'll receive exclusive goodies and content from me as a way of saying thanks for your support. And now here is the good fruit of suffering. As you can see on the board, I hope you can read my font selection here, but uh, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If we had time, we would look at the entire chapter, but in the interest of time, we'll pay special attention to verses 7 through 18. And this morning I wanted to talk about suffering, and not just suffering in abstract terms, but suffering in regard to that question. Suffering for whom? And notice, I'm not saying suffering for what, for what reason, but this is a a personal question. Suffering for whom? And Paul, all throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 4 wants to answer that question for us. He really lays out for us a whole theology of suffering in this passage that we're going to look at. And it will really be beneficial for us to kind of wrap our minds around what he's saying here. And to get us started off, I wanted to call your attention to two passages. You can stay in 2 Corinthians 4. But I'd like to read two passages to you and let you think about them in the context of suffering. So the first one is in John's Gospel, chapter 12, and this is what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, In this world, will keep it for eternal life. So it's an interesting analogy that he gives with our lives, and the benefit of them being that death. He says, "A grain of wheat falls, but the way that that is good, the way that it brings a good yield, is if it dies, because if it dies, it bears much fruit." So we think about martyrdom in particular, right? That famous phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As the church is persecuted, and this is very relevant today especially coming off of all the all the death that happened on, on Easter in different parts of the world, but that as the church is persecuted, even killed, really all that happens is it just continues to grow even more so. And to kind of give us another flavor of this concept of suffering and call your attention to John the Baptist, who said earlier in John's Gospel concerning himself in contrast to Jesus, John said this, he must increase, but I must decrease. Of course, we know what happened to John the Baptist, right? He was persecuted, imprisoned, beheaded, and that's a very sobering thought. So, a follow-up question to suffering for whom is really another question that I want to pose to you, and it's what should be produced in our suffering? Because that's really what these two passages get at when we think about suffering. So, Jesus talks about a, a yield of much fruit, and John talks about an increase of Christ and a decrease of Himself. Now to use that as a segue, let me call your attention now to what the Apostle Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This will be a very familiar passage to many of you, and there will be some key verses especially that you'll probably notice, or maybe you might even have some of them memorized. Uh, But here's what he says, I'd like to read this um, just as a full flow of thought. And then we will kind of look at it in two segments. So, starting in verse seven of 2 Corinthians chapter four, is what Paul says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a lot happening in that passage, uh, but we can hopefully kind of give a hearty amen to that last part especially. Uh, So I want to call your attention so that first paragraph there, verses seven through twelve, Paul mentions an interesting uh, analogy here. When he starts out, he talks about t- a treasure in jars of clay. In that context, jars of clay, we want to think about and what Paul means by that. Well, first of all, we have to a- ask the question: What is he talking about in terms of treasure? What does he mean? And really, it's a simple answer. All we have to do is look back to the verse previous to it. When Paul talks about this treasure, he's referring to the end of verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is a mouthful. Uh, But it's a glorious mouthful. Uh, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure that Paul is talking about, and it's the treasure that's been entrusted to us. Now, how is it entrusted to us? Well, he says, it's entrusted to us by being placed in jars of clay. Very often we hear the phraseology in the Bible that talks about the Lord is the potter and we are the clay, right? And what's communicated in that is, first of all, his sovereignty. Second of all, our worth in him, His handiwork placed upon us and shaping us and forming us. Well, that's not exactly what Paul means here in this particular context. He could have used really whatever analogy he wanted to. But he chose jars of clay, and he actually tells us why he chose jars of clay. Here's here's the reason. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God And not to us. So, get in your minds here that when we're talking about jars of clay, right now we're not we're not talking about our intrinsic worth. We're talking about our intrinsic inadequacy. Actually, we're talking about our frailty. We're talking about our imperfections. We're talking about our lack, our insufficiency. And that's really all I have to say. We can go now. Hope you feel bad about yourself, right? But that's not, he's not leaving us there, thankfully. The potter and clay distinction is all about, in this context, elevating the Lord and putting ourselves in a place of subservient care and honor and glory to God. We're being placed beneath Him in terms of our own sufficiency, I'll explain what that means here as we kind of think about this. But Paul wants us to get it drilled into our minds that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It was very common during this time that if you wanted to preserve something or if you wanted to place kind of an important document or something like that, you'd put it in a jar. Well, we know even in our modern day that the glory of finding treasure is finding a treasure chest. But when you find a treasure chest, you don't really care about the chest. Once you find the chest, you care about what's in it. The chest is really just a means to getting to what's in it, right? And that's what Paul is getting at here. God could have made us gold-plated jars if there is even such a thing as that. But Paul chose the phrase jars of clay, right? There, there's this, there's this, I don't know how many of you have tried to buy clay jars from Lowe's or Home Depot or somewhere like that. And when you can finally realize that you probably shouldn't have tried to fit it in your car, in the trunk of your car, because it doesn't fit in there, you're driving home very carefully because you know if it tips over it's probably, first of all, going to spill soil everywhere. Second of all, it's going to bust Because it's frail, it's fragile. And Paul means for us to understand that we are fragile people. But even in the midst of being fragile people, this treasure has been given to us. What is that treasure? Again, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what he leads us into when we're thinking about this treasure. First of all, let me pose a question to you, and I, and I want some interaction here, so this is not just to answer it in your mind, this is to answer it out loud. What is suffering? You are allowed to use synonyms if you want to. But seriously, I mean, we have this concept of suffering. What is it? Pain? Okay. Not to... Get ahead of uh, where the sermon's going this morning, but Paul uses that term suffering in Philippians as pressure, pressure, crushing weight. Can anybody outdo the pastor here? Got another another synonym? Get another word? I'm sorry. Okay. You know, we think about suffering a lot of times. And we have this concept, or we have really our own theology, right? Our own theology of suffering. We're Christians, so we relate suffering to God. We relate it to our Christian experience. That's a theology of suffering, whether we know it or not. We're participating in our own theology of suffering. Well, again, we're talking about Paul's theology of suffering. And this is not that here's Paul's view of it Then we have somebody else's view that's different in the Bible. I mean, this is unique to Paul, but it's not contradictory to the rest of the authors in the Bible. But I want to show you this morning that Paul, when he talks about suffering, doesn't define it in the positive. He defines it in the negative. Now don't get in your minds by that good and bad. You'll, you'll understand what I mean I hope as, as we read this next verse. Let me ask another question before I actually read this. When Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me, does he mean pain? Yes. (laughs) Little children. There we go. Does he mean pain when he says suffering? Does he mean pressure when he says suffering? What does he mean? Suffer the little children to come unto me. Allow. Allow. I'm not, I may be mistaken on this thing. Uh, Mr. Nicky, go ahead. I believe uh, what it means, uh, he's saying it that way. Let the children come unto me. Right, let them, right. What are you going to say? I was going to say, I don't know, i have to check the Greek, but I wonder if that's a different Greek word. It is, it is, it is. is. Okay. is. Still in my thunder. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is, It is a different term. So, we have to be careful with that. You do it to me in officer training. So. <laughs> <laughs> my yeah, right. Whatever. Anyways, uh, no, But when Jesus uses the word, he doesn't mean it in terms of pain. And, and it is a different Greek word. But when we think about suffering, I want to show you that even though Paul is using it as a different term than how Jesus uses the word suffering, he's still getting at the same concept here. And, and we'll do a little bit of cross-referencing here a little bit later as well. Uh, to show the way that we want to understand suffering. But here, here's how Paul says it, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, there's the positive, but not crushed, there's the negative. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, what's the emphasis of that? Is it the positive or the negative? Yes. You can say it out loud. Positive. Positive. Okay. Anybody say negative? I, mean, I think you touched on a little bit when it's kind of a definition by negation. Okay. But, uh, affirmation, denial. We are this, but not this. Right. Okay. Afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul, I'm going to argue here, is wanting us to focus on the negative part, the not part of each of those phrases. And the reason why is because we want to think about the jar and the treasure at the same time, right? We want to think about our frailty, but we also want to think about what it is that we possess, what we enjoy, whom we enjoy... Whom we commune with, that is Jesus Christ Himself in the midst of everything. And the reason that that is definitely true of what Paul's getting at is because of verse 10. Always carrying in the, how does he relate this suffering? He relates it to Christ. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Our Christian lives must be a display of the death and life of Jesus. Think you look historically, you can even look in our contemporary setting with different churches that very oftentimes we we go to one of two extremes. We don't land in, in a good mixture of the two. We either focus on the death of Jesus exclusively or we focus on the life of Jesus exclusively. This was really an interesting uh, concept to think about this last week, right? Because it's Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Coincidentally, um, in the class I'm taking right now uh, at school, we were talking about what is the gospel? How would you define the gospel? It's common in our day to define the gospel simply as Jesus died on the cross. How would you tell the gospel to somebody? God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. Well, that's true, but it's not the whole story. Thousands of people have died on crosses. What makes Jesus' death on the cross significant? We talked about it last week. Hopefully, we think about it every single day of our lives that he didn't stay dead, that he was raised from the dead, that his death was really sufficient for us for our sins. So there is a focus there on the death and the life of Jesus, and Paul wants us in our Christian lives to focus not only on the death of Jesus but also the life of Jesus. I want to throw out a few verses uh, for some of you to look up. Um, so hopefully you're you're good with this. Michael, will you look up Acts fourteen twenty-two? Will you look up Romans eight seventeen? Will you look up 2 Timothy 2.12? And Jesse, will you look up 1 Peter 2.21? And if you're there, you can go ahead and read. This is Acts 14.22. All right, Romans 8.17 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Second Timothy 2 12. Second Timothy 2.12 2 Timothy 2.12 I do not <clears throat> permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, at that hey, that was not a subliminal message. This <laughs> morning, I'm glad my wife's teaching some. <laughs> As an example of teaching that will cause suffering, <laughs> teach and preach that. You know, <laughs> I read that twice and I thought, boy, that was. <laughs> Okay, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, we will also disown, he will also disown us. Okay, that sounds more relevant to what we're talking about. <laughs> I think Chad's covering the, that other one next week, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> All right, and, and 1 Timothy 2.21. to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. Alright, so we're talking about suffering, trials, enduring, going through hard times as believers. And there's two extremes that we can really land on. And I think that they relate directly to Jesus' death and Jesus' life. So you have asceticism. I think that is too much of a focus on Jesus' death. So, Jesus gives us an example as a servant. He suffers. He, as that passage says in 1 Peter, He gives us an example to follow along in His footsteps. Then historically you had this, this moment where martyrdom was really seen as the elevated example of Christianity. Like the more you suffered, the more you endured physical pain, the better of a Christian you were. You kind of got like bonus points, right? You hit like you skip five levels to level seven, Christian, and that really is is too much of a skewed focus on exclusively the the death of Jesus, the suffering theme. Well, then you have the other side, which is really um, a heresy in so many different aspects. But the Word of Faith theology in my opinion, is far too much of a focus on the life and the reign of Jesus. They would actually disagree entirely. Most of them probably don't even read their Bibles enough to even read that verse about following Jesus' suffering example. But they would say that Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. And then if you do suffer, just pray it out of your life. Or if it gets into your life, well, that's because you sinned and you brought it in. So just repent, pray it out, it's gone Suffering is not a part of your life anymore because Jesus did all that already, right? That's that's too much of a focus on His life, on His reign, on His rule, that we just because we belong to Him suddenly don't have to partake in any of that. But again, those are two extremes. But Paul wants us to have a helpful, (laughs) balanced theology of both sides. We don't get bonus points just because we suffer more than the next person. We shouldn't go out and seek. Suffering, but at the same time, we shouldn't look at it as well, suffering's demonic, it doesn't need to be in my life, right? Paul has a balance for us. Affliction is a reality, but being crushed is not. Perplexion is a reality, but despair is not. Persecution is a reality, but being forsaken is not. Being struck down is a reality, but full destruction and being destroyed is not. There's a positive and a negative. And the way he relates that to Jesus is he says, we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When we think about suffering, we ask the question, why? Right? And and really what Paul's about to tell us here is that why me is actually. The most irrelevant question we could ever ask in suffering. That's a pretty extreme case to make. But I want to show you that Paul means for us to think that way. The why me question. That's the most common question anybody ever asks in their own minds or on Facebook or whatever the case may be. Why me when it comes to suffering? But Paul wants us to focus not on why me, but for whom We can answer that a couple different ways. For God, for ourselves, for somebody else. For whom? Why is it that we suffer? For whom do we suffer? Paul has here in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. I love that phrase that he uses, by the way, the same spirit of faith. And what he has just described is suffering. The faith that he's describing is expressed in our right theology of suffering. How do we relate suffering to God? How does it make sense between what we're going through and what God has to say and how He is involved in that whole time of suffering and trial and tribulation? But Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, then he quotes Psalm 116: "I believed and so I spoke." And that's a really good psalm. We don't have time to go into it. But the psalm really is a, is a validation of God's preserving hand, if I could just summarize it in one sentence. The psalm is all about God preserving His people all the way through. And Paul cites that as validation of what He's saying. We also believe, and so we also speak. Verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. And then pay special attention to this verse 15. For it is all for your sake. If you ever have time to go through 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is really just an awesome book. Obviously every book in the Bible is. But many of us are more familiar with 1 Corinthians. You have the spiritual gifts concept. You have the Lord's Supper. You have really just a whole bunch of different categories that we're familiar with in 1 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians is so good because Paul talks about the relatability between one another and the trials of life. That I could have really picked almost any chapter in 2 Corinthians and we could have talked about Paul's theology of suffering. This one just happened to be the one that I selected. But Paul again and again throws out a concept such as prayer, such as suffering, such as preaching the gospel. And he relates them again and again to... You go through this for my sake. I go through this for your sake. There's this relatability between believers of everything that we go through, whether good or bad. But Paul's talking about suffering here. And again, we want to internalize suffering. Why me? Why at this time in my life? Why does this have to happen? Because I'm trying to get this accomplished. I'm trying to get this done. But Paul doesn't say, why me? He says, what he's talking about is all for your sake. And then he says, why? So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's the first question and answer of our catechism? It's the chief and the man. Right. And what's the answer? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. Now we think about that. That's an all-encompassing sentence, right? What's the chief end of man? Is he talking about suffering? Yes. Is he talking about good times? Yes. Is he talking about fellowship with believers? Yes. Is he talking about losing your job and having to move somewhere else? Yes. All in all, in everything we go through, the the end goal is the glory of God and enjoying Him. Hmm. Yeah, just to add to what you're saying, the... The vitality of the message of who Christ is is exactly what Paul is getting at because in verse 2 of this chapter, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And that's really a problem, it's a huge problem in many churches is... We want the message to be well received, so we're gonna we're gonna tamper it. We're gonna provide it to people in a cunning way. You know, you throw the fishing line with a brand new car or a fog machine or whatever you want, reel them in. Throw enough toys in people's faces, and then you'll finally be able to start talking about Jesus. Feed people enough food, give them enough clothes, and then we can talk to them. About, right? There's so many things that we do, but Paul is more concerned with. A valid, authentic, faithful presentation of the message, and come what may. That's really what he's getting at, right? The Lord may use our message as a judgment upon those who refuse to believe and be saved, or he may use it as the very way by which they're saved. It's a, it's a message that has the aroma of life and death. And that's what we need to be concerned with. We don't need to change our theology to avoid suffering. We also don't need our theology to be all about suffering 24-7. We want to be faithful to the message. At the end of the day, when we look to the Lord, we want to say, I preach the message faithfully. We don't want to say, "I, I tweaked it a little bit because you know how that guy is, or... I really thought that this was going to happen if I was honest about who you are, so I didn't really want to divulge too much. And and that's not how we should be. But Paul says, in our faithful presentation of the message, instead of saying, why me? Or saying, well, God's really kind of cruel, isn't He? Because He promises me eternal life and glory with Him, but then I'm going through all these trials, and how does that prove a gracious and loving God? Well, think about it this way. In verses 8 and 9, when Paul talks about that positive-negative relationship, if we focus only on affliction, only on perplexion, only on persecution, and only on being struck down, first of all, that's not the whole story. Second of all, it would be proper for us to start asking questions and not being sure. But Paul wants us to focus on what is true for us as believers? Not only that we're afflicted, but what if we say, is God gracious? And we answer it by saying, absolutely He is, because in everything I've gone through, I've not been crushed, I've not been driven to despair, I've not been forsaken, I've not been destroyed. That's a gracious presentation of how God cares for us in the midst of suffering. And it's His prerogative if He wants to completely excuse us from a time of suffering. But again, we have to ask the question, not why me, but for whom? Because Paul says, it's all for your sake. My suffering is all for your sake because here's what happens. Grace extends to more and more people. It increases thanksgiving and glory is given to God. We have to realize that even though we're not in these third world countries and there's not so much death and destruction towards Christians as there is elsewhere, even though we live in a A a Disney World scenario of our civilization here compared to so many other places, we still are in the theater being displayed. Or really, maybe maybe a better way to describe it is that we are kind of in a museum, if you will. We're put on display. And as the world walks by, they examine us. They examine what our life is. They examine what we're going through at any given moment. And they see the contradiction sometimes, right? There's, there's this kind of, there's this raw thing happening when you lose somebody that you really love or you're faithful to proclaim the gospel and you lose your job because of it or you're fighting to have your marriage be pleasing in the sight of God and sometimes the nights are long and they're hard and you're trying to understand all that but even in the face of all of that God is seeing you through it. And what happens when the world sees us, or even believers, right? When all of you are going through something, and I'm watching it, whether you realize it or not. I'm not like looking through your window at night. But I'm, I'm watching how you progress day by day. And I say, humanly speaking, that should be destroying you right now. Humanly speaking, that should drive you to utter despair. But I can see the Lord working in you, because even though you're facing all of these things, I can see God's glory, I can see His grace, His care, His love for you being manifested because you keep going, because your joy continues. That's what Paul's getting at, right? When you see all these things you should be driven to complete despair, you should be absolutely destroyed, but you're not because the life of Jesus is being manifested in you as well as the death. The death is the reality of suffering, but the life is in spite of that you're still, you still belong to the Lord, you still keep going. And we when we think about my suffering is for you, your suffering is for me, it's really that theology of suffering that he's getting at. There's no such thing as isolated suffering that, oh, it's just something I'm going through, don't worry about it. I'm not saying just, you know, talk to anybody you want to and tell them everything about your life. But I'm saying that when we vocalize or when we display that we're suffering and going through something severe, we have to realize it's not just about me it's not this internalizing reality it's to display the Lord to you because as he says again grace extends to more and more people Thanksgiving is increased and God is glorified which is the chief end of our lives again I want to share this quote with you because I think it's really an interesting analogy it's not one that I've ever really thought about but I like it Uh, How many of you are familiar with Charles Simeon? Charles Simeon. Okay. The only reason I know about him is because I listened to a a biography lecture about him one time. He's an 18th century English preacher. I'm pretty sure that he was a Baptist. I can't remember exactly. But he basically was, um, if you looked at the whole scope of his life It was a pretty terrible life. Like his pastor was a really weird one because he was brought in to serve as an associate pastor at this church. And at that time they had the doors and the locks on the pews. And he is, after he serves for a few years, he's brought to be the senior pastor of the church. Well, the problem is the church didn't want him to be a senior pastor. They wanted this other guy to be senior pastor. So, even though he's senior pastor, and he goes and he preaches Sunday morning and Sunday evening, they decided, first of all, we're just not going to show up. Second of all, we're going to let other people show up, but we're going to lock all the pew doors. So, he shows up to preach in his own church. The people don't want him to be pastor there, and all the pews are locked. So, anybody that wants to listen to him just has to stand in the aisle and just listen And if I'm not mistaken, that happened for about 30 years or something ridiculous. It was this crazy thing. That's just a little glimpse of the kind of hard life that he lived. But listen to what he says about suffering for Christ's sake. And I hope you'll hear in this the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus being manifested. Here's what he says. My dear brothers, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through... I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our Holy Head, Jesus Christ, has surmounted all His suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow Him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of His glory. That's just an interesting way to talk about suffering. I don't know how many of you have gotten stuck in bushes lately. But if you have, I don't know what you're doing, but if you have, or when you were younger, the most important body part to get out of that is your head, right? You're not really like, I'm fine, my legs are free, right? No, you want to get your head out of there. If your head's out of there, it's not as big of a deal if your leg is still in there, because you can get it out, it might get a little scratched up, but better for your leg to get scratched up than for you to lose your head, right? That'd be a bad day. Well, he says... In terms of the body of Christ, Jesus is the head of the church. And he has gotten safely through that hedge. And if his head is free, it follows that the rest of the body is going to be able to get out. Because the most important part has overcome that hedge, if you will. And he says, we can bear the pricking of our legs a little bit, right? Because we know that the head has been freed from that hedge. And that's the way that he relates Jesus' suffering and death. And he says, he has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. And then here's that mindset let us follow him patiently, death of Jesus. We shall soon be partakers of his victory, life of Jesus. And that's what Paul, again, wants us to think about when we think about suffering. I'll give you one more verse and we'll close. Psalm 119 is a gigantic chapter in the Bible. But one of the most intriguing verses to me is the psalmist's view of affliction and suffering. He says this, this is in the 75th verse of the psalm. He says, I hear some of you turn there, I'll let you get there first. He says in terms of affliction, in terms of suffering, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? That, that doesn't even sound familiar to our culture in a lot of ways. Again, the why me question is sees God's faithfulness as an enemy to affliction, as an enemy to suffering. But the psalmist sees God's faithfulness, or rather he sees affliction as evidence of God's faithfulness. Let me say that again. When we think about affliction we often say this is in contrast to God's faithfulness. How can God be faithful because of this suffering? But the psalmist says this affliction is evidence of God's faithfulness. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. And the reason why he says that is the same reason here that Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians because if we have a right theology of suffering. We know that none of it is in vain, first of all. And second of all, God is doing a wonderful work in our suffering that goes beyond just us, but it goes to more and more people, as Paul says. It's a display of the glory of God to more and more people. It's a display of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ entrusted to us. And I hope that as you go through suffering, whether big or small, that you don't lose the theology of suffering that we're supposed to have. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, many times I go through suffering in tunnel vision. And it's not but months later, even years later that I look back on it and see what God was doing. And then you have that embarrassing, oh yeah, moment where it all makes sense and you realize that you were just blind to the whole thing. Now sometimes we, we can't fully comprehend the mind of God. We can't see everything He's doing, right? But He gives us enough theology of suffering and affliction in here that we're supposed to anticipate and understand what's happening. And what I mean by that is we're supposed to understand how we should act in light of our suffering, how we participate. And the biggest thing that I want to tell you and how we participate is that our suffering goes far beyond just us. This is the body of Christ, all those who are in Jesus Christ. None of our suffering happens without it affecting us in one way or another. If the hand gets cut off of a body, it affects the whole body. There's an infection spreading in a certain body part. It's eventually affecting that entire body. What's supposed to happen is the rest of the body is supposed to counteract that and build that member of the body up back to health. That's kind of the idea here is that whatever happens to any of us in our suffering, we have this relatability to one another. But we lose that if, number one, we internalize it, number two, we forget about all this until way after the fact. So we don't want to waste our suffering. We want to display the Lord in it because he's doing a wonderful work. Does anybody have any questions? Comments? Disagreements. So they suffer for what? I would answer it two ways. Um, Sin is the instant. Let me rephrase that. Death is really the punishment of any sin. And when God said, if you sin, you'll die. Anything less than that is is a grace, first of all because it's less than what we deserve. So I would say in a, in a temporary way, everybody, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, is subject to an imperfect world and suffering as a result because we're imperfect, right? We have a sinful nature. So in one sense, you could say that any kind of suffering upon a non-believer is nothing less than the justice of God for somebody who's rebellious against Him. In fact, it's less than what they deserve, because what they do deserve is death. It's what we all deserve as sinful people. But also, in a lot of other ways, suffering is often the means that God uses to soften us and point us to Him. Now, Paul later in 2 Corinthians contrasts godly grief and worldly grief. And the context is suffering. And he says that worldly grief is really a grief in vain because it ends in death. It doesn't end in turning to the Lord. It ends in death. But grief that is godly ends in repentance and eternal life. And again, that grief that he's talking about is related to suffering and being exposed to the things of the world. So I would say really it could be an either-or thing. Just as the Gospel on the one hand, can be the aroma of life, right? It brings about salvation. On the other hand, it's God's judgment pronounced against the world to those who refuse to believe in Him. So in that sense, it's His justice being brought out. I would say it's the same way with suffering for believers. you see that a lot in the life of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, th- and that goes back really just to... Again, that phrase, I uh, keep using the theology of suffering, how suffering relates to God, how it relates to, to us as Christians, because we're going to interpret suffering and go through it in a much different way than the world, because we, we have, just as Paul says, we see that the purpose, the intent, the end goal of our suffering, and for those who reject the Lord and want to live... In, in their own world, in a sense, outside of Him and the reality of God, which obviously they can't, but when they try to, then you then you have no meaning of suffering. You've dismissed the meaning of suffering in this in this world. Anybody have any other questions before we close? Yeah, that's a fine line we have to walk. Because, again, if we just say, I'm not laying my head down tonight until I suffer, right. then we're looking for it, we're, we're trying to make it happen, but then at the same time, James for if anybody knows the right he ought to do and fails to do it for him in his sin. So we don't want to hold back if the Lord does prompt us to say something or do something or whatever the case may be. That's kind of what this is really boiling down to. We want to walk a fine line when it comes to suffering. We don't want to go to this extreme, we don't go to that extreme. We want to just take it as it comes, but have that deep theology that that Paul's giving us of it's not internalized. It's not isolated. It relates to everything because of what God's doing in it. All right, we're a couple minutes over, so I'll close out if anybody doesn't have any quick comments. All right, thank you so much. Let's pray. Well, friends, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope you have a biblical view of suffering. I hope that you now have some context for perhaps what you're going through in your life right now, and I do pray that that was especially helpful to you. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 51. Just another thank you for your support and your willingness to continue listening to the show week after week really means the world to me. And I'm really excited about some things coming in the very near future for the website and for this podcast as well. Got some listener questions that have been submitted. I'm excited to start making some special podcast episodes for that, so be on the lookout for that. If you want to get up to date with everything happening, just head over to betterbiblereading.com. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening.